I'm really excited for this week's Parsha podcast because we are going to try to do something a little bit different, a little bit more challenging, I must warn you, than most weeks. But in my opinion, even more fun than we have every week, we're going to have this week, Parshas Vaizchanan. Now, how is it possible? How can you possibly have more fun in this week's edition of the Parsha podcast than we have every week? That is a very difficult question. And listen, and let's see if you agree that this week was more fun than most weeks. Now, this week's Parsha, Parsha's Vaschana, begins with a dialogue between Moshe and God. Well, truthfully, Moshe is telling the Jewish people about a dialogue that he had with the Almighty relating to the question of whether Moshe will be allowed to go into the land of Israel. Moshe was told, you may not enter the land. You're not going to lead the nation into the land. Joshua will lead them into the land. And Moshe is recounting now on his deathbed. He's about to pass. He's telling the Jewish people that he tried to get the Almighty to annul the decree, to reverse the decree, and the Almighty said no. And that's the beginning of our parsha. the first couple of verses. It tells us about the conversation. Moshe made the pitch. Moshe made the petition. Moshe made the request. And the Almighty said no. Now, I've mentioned in the past, I think this was actually mentioned in the rebroadcast podcast, that there is an incredible book on this parsha, and not even on the entire parsha of Eschanan, on these first couple of verses of the Parsha, on this dialogue between God and Moshe, there's an entire book written on these verses. Isn't that an amazing thing? A whole book and a couple of verses. Moreover, this book is considered to be one of the fundamental works of Kabbalah. It is called the Megala Amukros, which translates as the revelation of the depths. And what this book does is it offers 252 different approaches on this dialogue, on this discussion between the Almighty and Moshe. And this was written by one of the greatest of the Kabbalists. His name was Rabbi Nasanath Shapiro. He was the chief rabbi of the important Jewish city of Krakow in Poland. He lived 1585 to 1633. He passed away before he was even 50. But his Torah knowledge and depth are of such gargantuan perspectives, it's just absolutely staggering. So, for example, he wrote a book offering a thousand explanations on the small aleph of the word Vayikra, the first word of the book of Leviticus, Vayikra. There's a little aleph, an aleph zeira, and the word aleph, there's a letter aleph, but the Hebrew names of letters are also words, and the word Aleph means, amongst other things, it means a thousand. And he says, I'm going to offer you a thousand different interpretations on why there is a miniature, a small Aleph in the word Vayikra, the first word of the book of Leviticus. If you remember last year, we did an entire episode on a piece of his, last year Parsha's bow, we did a podcast titled 11 Dimensions of Exile, and that was entirely a piece from the author of the Megala Mukros. It got a great response. And I figured this year, Parshas Vazchanan, we're going to go for it again. We're going to try something unusual. We're going to do something atypical. We're going to try to delve into this great work, 252 approaches to 
Va'eschanan to the dialogue and discussion and petition of Moshe requesting entry to the land. Now, I think that studying his works are very interesting and it's very valuable. It's so incisive. It's so sharp. It's so deep. But I think more broadly, it also gives us a sneak peek into the vast scope of Torah. You know, we're taught that Torah is the word of God. And if God is infinite and the Torah is the Almighty's mind, if you will, well, then the Torah is infinite as well. And we only see a small sliver of that. We scratch the surface of Torah. But the deeper you go and you're looking for the bottom, where is the absolute end of Torah, so to speak? You discover that it's deeper and deeper and deeper yet. And I think this book is a perfect example of that. We have 252 different explanations of a conversation between Moshe and God. Now, this is, I think, a question we're probably going to get from a lot of listeners. Maybe you are even thinking about this. Wait a minute. If there's one conversation that actually happened between Moshe and God, historically, there was only one conversation. How can you have 252 different approaches to that one conversation? The answer is that these are not different approaches to try to understand the history of this dialogue. Rather, it's trying to understand the Torah of this dialogue. Once this dialogue becomes canonized in Scripture, it becomes a piece of Torah, and Torah is multidimensional, and we know that there are at least 252 ways to understand the Torah of this dialogue. And I was thinking that maybe we're going to make it a tradition on the Parsha podcast every year on Parsha's Vashanan to study one approach of the 252 essays, of the 252 approaches of this dialogue. And I did the math. If we start this year, we do one a year. We should finish in the year 2273. I'll be a ripe 286 years old, if I'm still alive, unlikely. Instead, I figured let's do something different. Let's find one. Let's start with one. And I started and I read approach number one, essay number one. And I said, you know what's a little bit too technical, a little bit too complicated. I went to two, I went to three, and I settled this year we're going to do approach number four. I found it very interesting, very profound, but also understandable. And each one, of course, is vast and deep and incredible. And it's maybe a little bit more technical than what we do each week. It's way more Kabbalistic. And there are many different subtleties and connections. We're going to dance around the Talmud and the Midrash and maybe even dip our toe in the Zohar and the Kabbalistic literature. And if you look at the book in its entirety, it's just incredible how you have a few verses and it can connect with every corner of Jewish literature. But we're going to do one of them. We're going to start with approach number four. We'll do it this year. If y'all like it, you send me an email. If you don't like it, you send me an email as well, and we'll know maybe we'll make this into a tradition each year, Parshas Va'eschanan. We're going to do approach number four. Unlike most episodes, a familiarity with Hebrew will give you a richer appreciation of the ideas because, of course, as the great Kabbalists do, they're trying to show us the layers, the strata, that part of Torah, and it helps when you could see the subtleties of the Hebrew words and see how 
maybe a word that appears here would appear elsewhere as well, and that can create potentially a connection between those two sections. Now, it would be helpful even if you don't know any Hebrew, it would be helpful if you follow along with an actual book to get a little bit of a picture of the structure. If you can, great, but regardless, I will try to make it as understandable and accessible. Now, I want to add that I have a personal affinity for this book because I am a direct descendant of the author. In fact, the author's name, Shapiro or Spiro or Spira, however it is pronounced, that is actually my mother's maiden name. My maternal grandfather, I think was 13 generations, son after son of the great author. So I have a particular affinity for this teaching, and it's very interesting, and it's very fascinating. Let us begin. Now, I want to start with giving maybe a little bit of the background of what's happening and going through some of the verses that he's going to discuss in his approach. Because in every one of the approaches that he gives, the 252 approaches that he gives to explain these verses, in each one, he focuses on something else. And I'm going to try to zone in on the ones that are particularly relevant for approach number four that we are going to do today. And I want to begin at the end of last week's parsha. The final two verses of last week's parsha. So this is chapter three, verse 21 and 22. And this is after Moshe has told the nation about the wars, the wars of conquest of Sihon and Og. And Moshe tells the nation that I commanded Joshua at that time to say, Hey, look, you saw all that God did to these great kings. And you should know that they might have do the same under your leadership when you cross over the Jordan. Now, if you look at that verse, the second to last verse, the penultimate verse of last week's Parsha, you'll notice something unusual, namely that the word Yehoshua, Joshua, is spelled unusually. Normally, you spell Yehoshua a Yud, a He, a Vav, a Shin, and an Ayin, five letters. If you look at the second word of the second to last verse of last week's Parsha, it says the word Yehoshua, but there is an extra vav after the letter shin. It's yud hey vav shin vav ayin, and that is something that should raise our eyebrows. Why is there an extra vav? The parsha concludes last week. Lo si raum, don't be scared of them, because Hashem, your God, He is the one who will be fighting for you, who will be fighting on your behalf. And then our parsha begins. Vaes chanan el Hashem baes hahi lemar. And I beseeched, I implored God at that time, saying, now this verse is a little bit peculiar in that Moshe is telling the nation that he was beseeching God, Ba'es Hahi, at that time, and he doesn't actually tell us when that time was. There's a specific time where Moshe was imploring God, but that time is unspecified in the verse. When exactly did Moshe beseech, implore God? So Rashi offers an answer. And Rashi says that this is after I conquered the lands of Sichon and Og, I thought maybe the Almighty has annulled the vow, and maybe I indeed can enter the land, and therefore I beseech God, let me go see the land of Israel, let me cross over the Jordan, let us do away with the vow barring me from entering. In each one of the 252 approaches 
the great book that we are studying today, the Magdala Mukros, he offers a different approach to explain exactly when it happened. Moreover, in each one of these approaches, he's going to explain why the particular time of this request and why the setting, the circumstance of this request, why and how that contributed to the request itself. And the Almighty's response is also going to be informed by that particular time that Moshe made the request. So, for example, I told you I read the first four approaches. In the first approach, the Megalamukos says that Moshe made this request when God appointed Joshua as his successor in Parshas Pinchas. And in fact, he points out that the last word of the first verse of our Parsha, the word lemor, which means saying or to say. And the problem is, of course, Moshe is speaking to God, but he is telling God, I'm telling you this to say. Now, who exactly is God supposed to say this to? Normally, it's the Almighty telling Moshe, you say this over to the Jewish people. But here Moshe is telling God, Lamor, you should say this over. And of course, that raises the question, who is Moshe referring to? Like, what is Moshe expecting God to do? So in the first approach, the Megala Mutra says, if you remember, there was one place in the Torah where the verse is reversed. Normally, it's by Debar Hashem al-Moshe Lamor. God spoke to Moshe saying, and there is one verse in the Torah, exactly once, where it's spun on its head, where it's Vayetaber Moshe El Hashem Lemor. Moshe spoke to God saying, and that is when Moshe asked God to appoint a successor, to appoint a replacement to him after he passes. And therefore, in approach number one, the Megal says that this request of Moshe was Ba'esahi Lemor, when I said the word Lemor in the unusual fashion, i.e. when I asked you to appoint a successor to me, and you appoint to Joshua, when I use this term Lamor in an unusual sense, that's when I made the request to allow me to enter. And the entire essay number one is oriented exactly why did Moshe at this particular juncture of the story, why did he feel like it was an auspicious time for him to request to enter the land? That's approach number one. Approach number two is that Moshe made this pitch, made this petition at the time where Aaron passed. And he thought that, wait a minute, if Aaron passed, maybe that would allow me to enter the land, because after all, the decree was that Moshe and Aaron should not cross over the Jordan. And now that Aaron's passed, it would be only Moshe crossing over the Jordan, and maybe under this circumstances, indeed, it would not be a violation of the oath. In approach number three, the Megalamukas explains that Moshe made this request at the time when the Almighty revealed to him the laws of vows. And in approach number four, there was another answer to this question as to exactly when Moshe made the request. And again, I want to stress, this whole book, 252 approaches to the dialogue of Eschanan, it's all about the multidimensionality of Torah. The actual conversation happened once. But because it's codified in the Torah, 
It can be deduced and expounded upon in many different ways. That's the theme of the whole book, 252 ways to understand the Torah of the conversation, not the history of it. So that's the first verse of our parsha. Moshe is saying at that time to God, what does he tell him? Quote, verse 24, My Lord, Hashem Elohim, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what power is there in the heaven or the earth that can perform according to your deeds and according to your mighty hand? Let me now cross and see the good land that is on the other side of the Jordan, the Strud Mountain, and the Lebanon. Moshe begins his pitch. Hashem Elohim, you started to show me something. Finish it. Let me see the land of Israel. Now, there are a few interesting things about this petition. First of all, it starts off Hashem Elohim. This is what's known as the full name of God, the encompassing name of God. The name of God that Rashi tells us invokes Rachum Badin, God is merciful in judgment. Sometimes we see one dimension, so to speak, of God's treatment of us. He's merciful. Other times we see a different dimension of God's treatment of us. Of course, God is only one, but the way he relates to us is different. Sometimes we see mercy, and sometimes we see judgment. And every once in a while, we see both of those attributes, if you will, united in one. Now, this formulation, Hashem Elohim, appears very rarely in the Torah. It's much more frequent in the scripture of the prophets. And the question we have to raise is, why is Moshe invoking this particular name of God, specifically now when he's making this request? Now, he tells the Almighty that you showed me, God showed Moshe, his greatness and his strong hand. Why did God show Moshe his greatness and his strong hand? And why does that serve as a fitting prelude to Moshe's request? And Moshe asks to cross over the Jordan. Let me cross over and let me see this great land, this good land on the other side of the Jordan, the good mountain and the Lebanon. So it's interesting if you study this verse, Moshe is asking not just to see the land, he's asking to cross over. We would think that the crossover is incidental. He really wants to see the other side. If it would be possible to see the land, to be in the land, to tour the land, to enjoy the land without crossing over, you would imagine that that would be good enough. But Moshe asked specifically, let me cross over. And the question is, what exactly is he referring to? Now, it's also interesting that Moshe says the word Ebrana, let me please cross over. And that word maybe also deserves an explanation. Why is Moshe pleading before God? And Moshe continues, but Hashem became angry with me because of you. He didn't listen to me. And he said, is it too much for you? Do not continue to speak to me. Instead, go on top of the mountain and go see the land, but you are not going to cross over. And instead, he tells him, Command Joshua, strengthen him, give him resolve, for he shall cross before the people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land that you will see. And the chapter ends, and the dialogue ends, so we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So a few things. God tells Moshe, no, I deny your request. Instead, go on top of the mountain and go witness, go look in all four directions 
of the land of Israel, but you will not cross this Jordan. Instead, you should command Joshua, you should strengthen him, you should give him courage. And then the section ends that we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Now, what is the relevance of this factoid that they were in Beth Peor? You may remember that Peor is the name of the idol that the nation capitulated to at the end of Parshas Balak in the aftermath of Bilam's failed cursing of the Jewish people. He gave a device to Balak, get the daughters of Moab and Midian, mobilize the women to cause the Jewish people to sin, and then they will do idolatry as well. And the question is, why is that relevant that we settled in the valley near the Beth Peor, near the house of Peor, near the, near the house of the idol? And it's also interesting that if you fast forward to the end of Deuteronomy 34.6, it says that the Almighty buried Moshe in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. So whatever's happening right over here, this is also indicative of where Moshe is going to be interred at the end of the Torah. And the question is, why is it mentioned over here? So that's the background of this piece. We have a dialogue. We have a discussion. Moshe is making a pitch. Let me cross over. Let me see the land. And the Almighty rebuffs the request and says, no, you can see the land, climb on top of the mountain, look in all directions, but you will not cross over the land. Joshua will lead the people into the land. You won't. And instead, they remained in Beth Peor. That's the background. Let us begin approach number four of the Megala Mukos, four of 252 to understand what exactly is going on over here. What is the deeper message or what are the various different ways that we can understand this dialogue? So we know that Moshe was very insistent on entering the land. In fact, the Midrash tells us that he prayed 515 times to enter the land and they might have said, if you pray one more time, I'll have to listen to you. So don't pray anymore. I don't let you pray anymore because you cannot enter the land. You cannot cross over the Jordan. And the question is, why is Moshe so insistent on entering the land? What's wrong with leading the Jewish people to the area on the other side of the Jordan? After all, he has a great legacy. If you look at the beginning of his Wikipedia article, his epithet, if you will, He accomplished a lot. He led the Jewish people out of Egypt. He orchestrated the ten plagues. He conveyed to us the Torah. Moshe has a sterling legacy, regardless of whether or not he enters the land. Why is Moshe so desirous, so covetous of entering the land? So the Talmud actually tells us one answer. It says that Moshe really deeply desired and yearned to enter the land to be able to fulfill the agricultural mitzvot that can only be done in the land, says the Megala Mutros, I will suggest a second answer. And he introduces two very interesting pieces of Talmud. The first is found in Sanhedrin, page 64a, and it's also featured in the book of Yoma, page 69a. And this tells us a very dramatic account of Ezra and the men of the great assembly. So this is a collection of sages and prophets at the beginning of the Second Temple era. And they prayed and petitioned God to excise the evil inclination for idolatry. 
And the Talmud gives a very dramatic account of what happened. It says that these great sages prayed and cried for three days, and they told God, whoa, whoa, this evil inclination for idol worship, it's what destroyed the temple, and it's what burned the sanctuary, and it's what killed the tzaddikim, the righteous ones. This is what caused the exile, the destruction. And yet it's still here. It still dances in our midst. Didn't you give us the evil inclination for our own benefit? So we can resist temptation and get reward? We don't want it and we don't want its reward. That was their petition to the Almighty to remove the evil inclination for idolatry. And they prayed and fasted for three days. And the Almighty agreed. The Almighty accepted the request. And a fiery lion cub burst forth from the Holy of Holies. And the prophet tells the Jewish people, this is the evil inclination for idol worship. And they grabbed it. It's a very dramatic story how they grabbed it and contained it and neutralized it. And eventually they threw it into a lead box. They covered it with lead because it was screaming. It's a very dramatic account. Take a look at it. And they have now neutralized the evil inclination, the desire for idolatry. And the Talmud says that they were emboldened with their success. And they said, hey, if the Almighty is now acceding to our requests to remove the evil inclination, well, there are other evil inclinations that we have to do sins. Let us pray to remove the evil inclination for sexual morality. Once we're at it, let's get rid of that too. So indeed they prayed, and they got that as well. But the problem is that three days later, they were looking for a fresh egg for a sick person. And it turns out that... They had, quote, thrown out the baby with the bathwater, as they say. They got rid of the good parts of this evil inclination alongside the bad parts. And now people don't have an urge to reproduce. And even the animals, says the Talmud, ceased to reproduce. So they said, what should we do? So instead of destroying the evil inclination for sexual morality, they blinded it. They gouged out its eyes. Now, by the way, the Talmud describes to us what the evil condition for idolatry looked like. It was a fiery lion cub. It does not describe to us what the evil condition for sexual immorality looked like. But it tells us that they didn't destroy it. Instead, they made it blind. And this, the Talmud tells us, this limited it that a person is no longer aroused by their immediate relatives. That is the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 64a, and in the book of Yoma, page 69a. Now, of course, if you read this Talmud, it raises all kinds of questions, but that's not really our subject right now. But it does reveal to us the question of why people of yore were so obsessed with idolatry, you know, to us. We read about idolatry all over the book of Deuteronomy. Moshe's warning, people don't get into idolatry. You read the book of the prophets, there's just 
an obsession with idolatry, and it makes no sense to us at all. We find absolutely no pleasure, there's no desire that we have to genuflect to figurines of wood and stone. And this is the answer. The evil inclination for idolatry used to exist. It no longer exists, and therefore we have no idea why people are motivated to do it. We don't have that desire. It makes no sense to us. Even then, it wasn't logical. It was some sort of irresistible emotion that they had. But it's extinct. It's gone. And consequently, we have no desire for idolatry, just like we have no desire for incest, as the Talmud says, they blinded the evil inclination for sexual morality. The Talmud actually gives us a story of Rav Ashi. Rav Ashi is a 5th century sage who was one of the architects of the Talmud. And he was giving a lecture to his students. And he said, tomorrow we're going to talk about our friend Menashe, the king of the Jewish people, who was an idolater, who's considered to be one of the worst idolaters of history who's one of the teens listed amongst those who lose their portion in Olam Abba, tomorrow tells Ravashi to his students, tomorrow we're going to talk about our friend Menashe. This is like a cliffhanger. Uh, next week's episode, uh, uh, next show, tomorrow's lecture. He wanted to make sure the students come tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the very interesting topic of our friend Menashe. And that night, the Talmud tells us, Ravashi has a dream. And who appears to him in the dream? Menashe, King Menashe, the subject of tomorrow's lecture. And Menashe tells Ravashi, you called me your friend. I'm not your friend. I'm your superior. And King Menashe begins to grill the great rabbi Ravashi on matters of Torah. And Rav Ashi quickly discovers that Menashe is a greater Torah scholar than him. And he says to him, I don't understand. If you're such a bright Torah scholar, why were you so obsessed with idolatry? So King Menashe tells Rav Ashi, he says, you don't understand. You are coming to me after this desire went extinct. You have no idea what it's like. You have no idea what it was like to be living under the dominion of the evil inclination for idolatry. And then he tells them, if you were alive at that time, not only would you run to do idolatry, you would lift up your robe so you could run even faster to get to the house of idolatry. That's how intense the desire for idolatry was. But it's gone. The men of the great assembly, under the leadership of Ezra, they prayed and they excised this desire. Previously, there was this irresistible desire for idolatry, and now it's gone. Now, as an aside, I want to point out that this marked the end of the era of prophecy. When prophecy goes extinct, so does the desire for idolatry. And this is an idea we've spoken about in the past. There has to be this one constant in all of human history at least up to the time of Messiah, the themes have to be balanced. If there is a Moshe, the greatest prophet that ever lives, who is the leader of the Jewish people, there has to be 
The anti-Moshe, there has to be a prophet of equal or greater capacity on the other side, fighting for the other team on the dark side, and that is Bilaam. Prophecy, of course, pulls you to God. There has to be an equally attractive counterforce that pulls you away from God. And therefore, idolatry or the desire for idolatry and prophecy, they went extinct concurrently. You cannot have a time where one exists and the other doesn't because then things would be off balance. Things would be asymmetrical. And therefore, these two must go out together. They're necessarily linked. But that's the first Talmud, which is the background, if you will, for approach number four in the Megala Mukros. Talmud number one. Talmud number two comes from the Talmud in the book of Arachin, page 32b. And this is oriented around a verse in the book of Ezra. And this verse is talking about when people, the people came back from captivity, they made sukkos and they sat in the sukkos because they did not do that from the times of Yehoshua Benun, from the times of Joshua, the son of Nun. And there was tremendous joy and delight because now they were sitting in a sukkah. This is talking about what happened in the times of Ezra. They sat in a sukkah something they hadn't done to the times of Joshua, and therefore was a time of great joy amongst the Jewish people. Now, the Talmud points out that there are two differences between the way the word Joshua is spelled in that verse, the book of Ezra, chapter 8, verse 17, and how it is normally spelled. Number one, it's spelled Yeshua, which means Joshua, but there's no hey, there's no letter hey. It's not Yehoshua, it's just Yeshua. Number one. Number two, the Vav comes after the Shin, not before the Shin. Normally it's Yud, Hey, Vav, Shin, Ayin. And here it's Yud and there is no Hey, and the Shin comes before the Vav, Shin, Vav, Ayin. So that's the background of this Talmud, the book of Arachim, page 32b. And this is the second of two pieces of Talmud that will be the background for approach number four of 252 to understand the dialect of Moshe and God. Now, what does it mean that there was no one sitting in a sukkah until the times of Ezra? Could it possibly mean that for the hundreds of years and the many great prophets and eras of history, times of David and Solomon and Samuel and the great judges, they didn't fulfill the mitzvah of the Torah to sit in the sukkah? How could that be? Says the Talmud, this is not referring to an actual sukkah that we sit on the festival of Sukkot, a temporary house a fulfillment of the mitzvah. Rather, it is a reference to the eradication of the evil inclination of idolatry. Ezra prayed for that. Ezra, at the helm of the men of the great assembly, they prayed to get rid of this evil inclination. And that protected the Jewish people like a sukkah. And from the times of Joshua until Ezra, no one did that. And therefore, there was no protection of a sukkah, because there was still the evil inclination for idolatry. Continues the Talmud. And the reason why Joshua's name is spelled unusually in this verse, is because Joshua should have done this himself. When Joshua entered the land, Joshua should have prayed and fasted for three days, 
and gotten rid of the evil inclination for idolatry. And Joshua didn't do it. And therefore, from the time of Joshua until the time of Ezra, no one did it, and therefore there was no protection of the sukkah. Explains the Talmud. What about Moshe? Why is Moshe not criticized? Why don't we reduce letters from the name of Moshe? If we're going to reduce letters from the name of Joshua, because he should have done it, and therefore the Torah is criticizing him that he did not make this sukkah protection by getting rid of the evil kind of idolatry until the times of Ezra, why is Moshe as well not criticized? Says the Talmud, Moshe couldn't have done it. He was never in the land of Israel. He did not have the merit of the land of Israel. But Joshua, who did have the merit of the land of Israel, he should have prayed, and he didn't, and that's why his name was reduced. That's the background. Let's get back to the Megala Mukros. In approach number four, he suggests the following. Moshe, as a prophet, envisioned that God would be angry at Joshua, that he did not pray for the destruction of the Yetzirah, the evil creation of idolatry, like Ezra and the men of the Great Assembly did at the beginning of the Second Commonwealth, at the beginning of the building of the Second Temple. And that's why Joshua was reprimanded in the book of Ezra and had his name deducted. But Moshe was not to blame because Moshe never entered the land. And therefore, Moshe is telling God, I want to enter the land. Because if I enter the land, I will indeed pray to get rid of the evil inclination of idolatry. Once I have the merit of the land of Israel at my side, I will pray to destroy the evil inclination of idolatry, like Ezra did. And that's the reason why Moshe wanted to enter the land. So the Talmud offers one reason why Moshe was so desirous of entering the land, because he wanted to do the agricultural mitzvos. Says the Megalamukos, I'm going to give you a second reason why, and this is approach number four, Moshe wanted to enter the land to be able to eradicate the Yetzirah, the inclination for idolatry. And in the run-up to this petition, the penultimate verse of last week's parsha. Joshua has an extra vav after the shin. Where's the other place that Joshua has an extra vav after the shin? That is a reference to the other time that Joshua's name has a vav after the shin, namely in the book of Ezra. And how does Moshe begin his petition? Va'es chanon el Hashem ba'es hahi lemar. I beseeched and implored God at that time ba'es hahi lemar. The word hahi can also be read hahei of the hey. Hey is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that is the same letter that was taken away from Joshua in the book of Ezra. Moshe prayed to God, ba'es hahi, at the time of the hey, at the time when the hey was taken away from Joshua. Lamar, the word lamar, which means saying, is always a reference to perpetuation, and oftentimes to perpetuation for generations. Moshe was telling God, he was petitioning God, that 
I wanted to enter the land for the benefit of the generations. I want to fix idolatry. I want to get rid of the evil condition for idolatry. And I'm going to benefit many generations. And how does he begin his pitch with the name Hashem Elohim, which is the full name of God as it's called? He's telling God, I wanted to do this for your sake, for your name. Idolatry is a foreign God. If I'm going to enter the land, I'm going to eradicate this evil inclination. I'm not going to wait till Ezra to do it. I'm going to do it myself. And then the name of Hashem will be preserved and given honor. There'll be no more idolatry. Continues verse 24. You showed me, you began to show me your great hand, your strong hand, your greatness. What is that a reference to? What did God show Moshe? And why does that serve as a fitting preamble to this request? Explains the Megala Mukros that Moshe was shown a special book, the book of Adam, the book that chronicles all of human accomplishment for all of history. And Moshe saw the entry of Ezra. And Ezra was the one who ridded the world of idolatry. Says Moshe, you showed me that this could be done. You showed me that Ezra in the future will do it. I want to do it now. Let me cross over the Jordan and I will get rid of idolatry. I will get rid of the evil inclination for idolatry. Now the word to cross over, e'ebra, let me cross over, it is the same Hebrew word as removal. Laha'avir, to remove. Laha'avir arts to remove idolatry from the world we say in the Elena prayer. Ebra, no, let me cross over, explains the Megala Mukros. It can also be read as, let me remove the idolatry. I want to cross over the Jordan. I want to remove idolatry from the world. And then he says something fascinating. The Rambam tells us, in his delineation of the mitzvahs of the Torah, he tells us that there are 51 different mitzvahs, different prohibitions related to idolatry. Says the Megalomukros, the gematria of the word na, na means please, but the gematria, the Hebrew numerical value of the word na is 51, and that's what Moshe is telling God, Ebra na, let me remove the 51. Let me remove the 51 pitfalls. Let me remove the possibility for these 51 sins, because I will cross over the Jordan, and I will remove the Yetzirah, the inclination for idolatry. Now the word Ebra, let me cross over, tells us the Mugros, the gematria of that is the same gematria of the word Ezra. Ebra, now let me cross over and remove the 51 sins for idolatry. I want to do what Ezra will do. This is Moshe's pitch. He is referencing an event in the future where Joshua is going to be berated and have his name reduced because Joshua did not do what Ezra did, says Moshe to God. I will do it. Now let me cross over and do what Joshua didn't do. And let me do what Ezra will do in many centuries hence. 
that is Moshe's pitch, according to approach number four of 252 in the Megala Mukros. This seems like a really strong petition. How can God refuse? What does God say in response? Hashem said to me, Rav Lechal, it's too much for you. Incidentally, the word Rav Lecha, or the words Rav Lecha, equals the gematria of 252, when the author finished 252 approaches to explain this dialogue, he too was told, Rav Lecha, it's enough. Stop here. Now, what exactly is this referring to? Why did God tell Moshe, Rav Lecha, it's too much for you, or there is something more for you? Rav means a lot or more, or something big, or something great, something bigger. So the Megalamukos introduces an amazing Midrash that discusses what happened in the aftermath of the golden calf. This Midrash is featured in the Perkei Derbelezer, chapter 45. It says that the Almighty sent five angels to destroy the Jewish people. And those five angels were named Ketzef, Af, Chema, Mashches, and Charon. And if you are familiar with Hebrew, you will know that those are five different words for destruction, and here we're told that their names are five different angels that the Almighty sent to go destroy the Jewish people after the Jewish people did the sin of the golden calf. And when Moshe heard about that, he went to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, I need your help. Your children are going to be destroyed and they're going to be slaughtered like sheep. I need your help. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got up and they said, we're on, we're ready. And in the merit of these three forefathers, three of the angels, three of the destroyed angels were stopped and two were left. And then Moshe prayed to God and he stopped the other two. But apparently, says the Midrash, the angel was still around and was still lurching to go try to destroy the Jewish people. So what did Moshe do? He dug a massive hole in the land designated for the tribe of Gad. And he buried the angel named Charon Af. And the angel's like interred and incarcerated in this burial spot. And whenever the Jewish people sinned, this angel got up and would open his mouth really big to come and swallow the Jewish people. And Moshe would invoke the name of God and would stuff it back down in the ground. And that's why this angel or this place is called Pi'ar, which means wide open, because this angel wants to swallow the Jewish people. It opens its mouth wide open and Moshe sends it back to where it came from. And when Moshe was going to die, what did God do? He placed Moshe's burial spot opposite Beth Peor, opposite the burial spot, if you will, of that angel that's still trying to go destroy the Jewish people. And whenever the angel gets up and begins to lunge for the Jewish people, and he sees the burial spot of Moshe, 
He gets scared and he goes and slinks back down below. And that's why, concludes the Midrash, Moshe was buried in the valley opposite Beth Pa'ar, opposite where the angel was placed. Back to the Megalomukros. God said to Moshe, you want to go into the land to go eradicate the evil inclination for idolatry. Rav Lecha, there's a bigger job for you. You have to be buried in the other side of the Jordan, opposite where that force is buried. There's a much more important job for you to stop this angel from engulfing the Jewish people. Tells us the Megalomukros, the name of this angel is Charon Af. And the gematria of Haronaf is 345, which of course, not incidentally, is the same gematria as Moshe. And whenever Israel sins, whenever the Jewish people sin, this angel, Haronaf, picks up its mouth, picks up its head to swallow the Jewish people. And when he sees Moshe, he returns to where he came from. And that's the relevance of the final verse. God tells Moshe, you cannot enter the land, even though you may have very noble intentions as to why you want to do that. We remained in the valley opposite Beth Bar. That is actually the reason why Moshe was denied, because Ravlcha, you have a much bigger, more important job to do to quiet and suppress the Haronaf, that angel that still wants to come destroy the Jewish people. And Moshe is told to command and to instruct, and to encourage, and to strengthen Joshua, says the Megalamukos, the Talmud tells us the word sav is a reference to idolatry. Moshe is told to encourage and nudge Joshua to do it. And because Joshua didn't do it, that's why God was angry. You should have heeded to Moshe. And that's why Joshua needed to be fortified, with the encouragement and the strengthening of Moshe, because of his flaw, of his mistake, for not indeed doing the job of Ezra. Thus concludes approach number four of the Megala Mukos. What a interesting and delightful ride. We have a novel interpretation as to why Moshe wanted to land so badly, and why he was rebuffed. And I also think there's a very interesting lesson, a valuable lesson, in this back and forth. Sometimes we seek to do something good, something valuable, something righteous, something beneficial for others. And God says no. And we wonder, why would God preclude me from doing something beneficial? Shouldn't the Almighty clear the path for me to do a mitzvah? If I'm trying to do something valuable and righteous and necessary and important, why would God say no? And that's maybe the question that Moshe would be asking. If, as approach number four tells us, if Moshe wanted to enter the land to eradicate the evil creation of idolatry, why would God say no? And the answer might be, as it was in Moshe's case, and maybe as it would be in our case, sometimes the Almighty is telling us You cannot do that thing that you seek to do because in your current state, in your current orientation, in your current situation, you have something even more important to do. 
In your current state, you have an even more important role to play. And that's why I'm saying no. So there you have it. One down, one novel approach to explain the dialogue with emotion and God. And of course, along the way, we took all these little tangents to explain these very interesting aspects of Jewish literature and philosophy. To fully understand, to complete this book, we have 251 novel interpretations to go. I can't wait until next year's Parshas Vaischanan. And tell me, do you like this kind of format? Do you like this kind of idea? If you like it, if you don't like it, let me know. I have to say, I had so much fun studying these pieces. I actually today floated the idea, maybe I should translate this book. It's, of course, a very ambitious thing to do. For now, let us be content with approach number four. Let me know if you like it. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q, answers and questions. And the question for this week is as follows. Moshe prayed incessantly to have the decree annulled and that he entered the land. And that, of course, is the dialogue we just read about. And God has to stop him. And the Midrash tells us Moshe prayed 515 different times. Moshe was very insistent. He's praying very intensely. But together with Moshe, there was someone else in this decree, namely Aaron. The only reason why Moshe was told he cannot enter the land is for the sin of striking the rock. And the only reason why Aaron as well was barred from entering was also that sin. Moshe and his older brother Aaron are identical in the reasons why they were disallowed to enter. And Moshe prays very intensely to have that undone. Yet we do not find any indication that Aaron prayed to undo this decree for him. And the question is, why not? Why is Moshe so determined to revoke the decree? But Aaron seems to take it in stride and doesn't make a pitch to change it. That is this week's question, and I'm going to give you a hint. If you're still around, it's almost an hour into the podcast. Only the real diehard friends and fans of the Parsha podcast are still listening. I'm going to give you a hint. In the aforementioned book, Megalamukos, in approach number 28, he asks and answers this question in a beautiful and Kabbalistic way. If you want a sneak peek for the answer we're going to talk about next week, please, God, you could go to approach number 28 and check it out for yourself. But again, as I mentioned, this book is not translated in English yet. So you'll have to navigate the language of Hebrew. Or you could just wait until next week. Or you don't have to rely on this answer. You can make up an answer of your own. The Torah is multidimensional. You can give your answer. Email it to me. RabbiWalby at gmail.com. And I'm very happy to announce that the last couple of weeks I've been very bad with my emails. And the whole morning today, I answered dozens upon dozens of emails. We got to inbox zero, almost. So now there is a fresh and empty inbox flooded with emails. 
Okay, last week, we asked an interesting question as to what is the utility of the teaching and clarifying of the Torah in 70 languages. And I saw two different answers in the Sfas Emes that I really liked, and I am proud to say that both answers were subsequently submitted to me by the amazing listeners and members of the Parsha podcast family. And here they are. Number one, each one of these 70 languages corresponds to one of the 70 nations that stands in opposition to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are given Torah to withstand everything and to pursue holiness. And each one of these 70 nations has a unique power to resist holiness. And therefore, by conveying Torah in all 70 languages, Moshe ensures that under any circumstances, under any foreign dominion, under any exile, under the forces of any of the 70 nations, Torah can flourish and the Jewish people can persevere. Moshe infused the Torah with almost like bulletproof Kevlar to make the Torah have the strength and the wherewithal to flourish under any situation. That's the number one that I saw that I really liked. Number two, by conveying the Torah in 70 languages, Moshe is empowering the nation to be able to illuminate the 70 other nations. We're told that we have to be a light unto the nation. We have to spread the light of Torah to every corner of the world. We have to transform even the darkest corners of the world with Torah and Moshe imbue the Torah with the ability to reach every inch, every corner of the 70 nations. And I think that these two answers highlight the dual roles of our nation and the ends to which we must utilize Torah for. On one hand, it's there to inoculate ourselves from the dangerous surroundings we find ourselves in, we have to preserve the good that we have and not allow it to become tarnished and not allow it to become sullied. But then we have to also take the Torah and allow it to burst forth and to transform the bad that may be around us into good. That is another thing we must use Torah for. And by having the Torah in 70 languages, we are given the tools to do both of them. I thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I know this was a little bit different than what we usually do. A little bit more demanding. And if you have stayed all the way to the end, I salute you and I appreciate you. And I hope you have a great rest of your week. I hope you have a fine, delightful, good, splendid, superb, stupendous, tremendous, wonderful Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, we will talk again in good health, and in great spirits next week.